And today we begin a month-long series through the life of Abraham. And then in July, we're going to do the same thing through the life of Joseph at the end of Genesis. Uh, it is hard to overstate the importance of the book of Genesis and the importance of the person of Abraham to the Christian faith. Uh, Paul calls Abraham the father of all who believe. Uh, if you follow Christ, if you believe the gospel, uh, then Abraham is your father. Uh, I want you to say that to yourself. Abraham is my father. Uh, without him, there is no salvation for anyone. Without the Jewish people, there is no salvation for anyone. And so that feels like an important thing to say with the re recent resurgence of anti-Semitism throughout the country and throughout the world in the past year. Let us praise God for the Jewish people. Let's be thankful for them. The gospel is first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. Uh, we are second. They are first. Um, we have been grafted into their tree, and it remains their tree of salvation. Uh, Abraham is the source and fountain of salvation by grace through faith. Uh, but that's not the only way that Abraham is our father. Uh, Abraham is also our father because we are like him. Uh, that is abundantly clear as you read the story of Abraham in Genesis. I am like Abraham, and he is like me, like father, like son. Um, in the same way that Abraham is saved, I am saved. In the same way that Abraham sinned, I sin. In the same way that Abraham struggled, I struggle. In the same way that he grew, I grow. And so it pays to study his life closely and to meditate on these stories. Um, and not only do I know this because Paul in the New Testament tells me, uh, so the Bible just gives us so much detail, um, a ridiculous amount of detail. Uh, the book of Genesis paints this rich por portrait of the father of faith. Um, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, before Abraham, chapters 1 through 11, um, it covers millennia, thousands of years, and it covers it very quickly. We only get little snapshots of people. But then we get to Abraham, and it slows down. I mean, it tells all these, all these seemingly side stories as you work through and it's just meant for us to experience slowly and to meditate on him. Um, I encourage you to read the story over the course of June. It's uh, 13 chapters, Genesis, Genesis 12 to 25 is his life. Um, I won't cover all of those stories. There are lots of stories. And even in what I do cover, there's just a ton to glean. And so I encourage you to read it, to read it slowly, to imagine yourself in all the characters' places. Um, Abraham is not a simple character. He is a complex person a flawed person. So sometimes he's believing, uh, sometimes he's doubting, sometimes he's really brave, impressively brave. Um, often he is a complete coward. Um, but the most encouraging thing about his story is that he matures over time. You read Genesis 22, 23, the later part of his story, and he is vastly different than the beginning part of his story. And that encourages me so, so much. Um, that Abraham can be such a fool, um, such a coward, such a ridiculous human being like I can be, but by the end of his life, he has strong faith in Yahweh. And so take heart, friends, you too can mature over time. Uh, you can follow his track. You can fail royally and God will rescue you yet again. You can do the same thing twice. There's that part where he tells the king that uh, Sarai is his sister and, and, and he lets her, risks her uh, being gone forever. It is a wild story, such a terrible story. He does it two times 
and yet God consistently rescues him, and he even prospers out of the rescue, right? He, he is made wealthy in the exchange. It's, it's baffling um, to think that, and you too can, that can happen for you, where you can fail royally, repeatedly, and God will rescue you yet again. You too can be God's agent um, in a powerful way where he rescues Sodom and Gomorrah before Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. He rescues them. He goes and rescues them freely. He won't take any, it's not a power grab. He won't take any money for it. Um, he was used by God. He, you could be God's friend when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Yahweh says, man, if, if I'm calling Abram, if I'm calling Abraham, I probably should tell him what I'm gonna do. And so he sends messengers to have an intimate conversation with him and to get his thoughts on what is happening. It is such an encouraging story. God can bless you and through you, God can bless many, many, many people. And so let's pray as we begin this journey through Abraham's story and uh, then we'll start. Dear Father, we are thankful for Abraham. We're thankful for the detail that you give us about Abraham's life. Uh, he is Father Abraham. He is the father of our faith. And he's the father in so many ways. We are dependent on him. Jesus comes through him. The promises that you give to him come to us through Christ. And so we're thankful uh, just for the inheritance that we receive. Uh, we are also thankful um, because we see ourselves so much in Abraham, even in the, even in the awful things that he does, I, I see myself in that. Um, I see myself less in his courage, um, but I'm like him in that too. I have that potential to be courageous, uh, to be an agent of reconciliation, to be an intercessor uh, for lost people. Uh, Father, I pray as we work through this story that it changes us in good ways. Your word is powerful. And so would you speak to each of us? Um, would you speak? I'm asking, you know, so often we, we get different things from scripture um, and that's appropriate where it meets us wherever we are. But I also pray as one church that you would speak to us, that there would be something that you would say to us you, uh, in unity, that you would speak to us all in the same way. Um, and that we would come out of this in June and then out of the story of Joseph uh, in July, uh, feeling like we had all been spoken to as a, as a group, as a family. I ask that from you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so today's sermon starts at the beginning. Uh, it's about where Abraham came from and where he's going. And so before meeting Abraham, we meet Abraham's family. In the last verses of Genesis 11, we get his backstory. So verse 27 says, these are the generations of Terah. Um, and Terah is Abram's father. Abram had two brothers, uh, Nahor and Haran. And Haran died relatively young. And when that happened, Abram uh, took Haran's son Lot under his care. So he sort of adopted essentially his nephew. And then Nahor took Haran's daughter as his wife. He married his niece. And then we learn later that Abram was married to Sarai, um, who is his half-sister. That is all very, very weird, right? Uh, that they're marrying nieces and half-sisters. Um, those family dynamics are odd. Um, and honestly, they're weird to us mostly because of Christianity. Christianity has made those things weird. These practices would eventually be prohibited by God's law at Sinai. Um, but we don't have God's law at this point. And it's important to remember that at this point in the story, Abraham 
was not a follower of God. That is not the reason that he was called. He likely had no idea who Yahweh was. Uh, if he is a pagan, and based on his location, based on Sarai's name, Milka's name, as they look, he was likely involved in moon worship. That was his uh, childhood faith. That's what he grew up for 75 years, worshiping the moon, and the moon goddesses, and moon kings, and things like that. And that should strike us, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, as a sharp turn in God's plan. Up to this point, God had chosen people who were already followers of God. And so Adam is literally born as a follower of God. He is sinless, perfect, without the knowledge of good and evil. He knew and worshiped God. Noah, like him, was chosen because he was righteous. It says that because everybody was unrighteous, but Noah was righteous. And so God chose him um, to restart the world. But how did those choices, how did that track how is that track record? It didn't work very well, right? Both men failed completely. And so beginning again with Abram, God takes a decidedly different tactic. In Genesis 1 through 11, we see that humans cannot save themselves. Um, he ch- and so he chooses someone who is not righteous, who has nothing good about him whatsoever. Uh, he is an idol worshiper. He knows nothing of Yahweh. Uh, he's an unimpressive person. He's not a king. He's not a sage. He's not a warrior. Before being called by God, Abram was nobody. The only extra detail we have of him is that he is childless. Genesis eleven thirty. Sarai was barren. She had no child. And so childlessness, it's always painful, deeply, deeply painful. It was especially painful in before modern times because children were key components to a family's economic and social standing. You were great, partially, substantially, because of your children. Uh, Gordon Wenham says, without children, the man had no one to perpetuate his name. And the wife enjoyed little prestige and much frustration for she had no alternative career to motherhood. Further, in old age, childless couples had no children to care for them. And after death, none to carry out the funerary rites regarded as vital to the soul's well-being in the afterlife. And so we, set, we need to sort of pause and remember how inconsequential and how small Abram was in the world at this time. This is the man, this is the couple through whom God chose to rescue the world. And he tells us his plan in, in chapter 12, verses one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is one of the most important passages in all of scripture. If you're new to the study of scripture, you can log Genesis 12 into your mind as as one of the key passages. Every single book of the Bible, without exception, appeals to these three verses. Old and New Testaments, often explicitly, definitely implicitly, it is working out the promises to Abram. The whole story of Abraham, the whole story of Abraham's people, including our story, is a striving after what is found in these three verses. And so clearly it's important and you should sort of memorize Genesis 12, just keep it in your mind as an anchor point for all of scripture. 
Um, this is what the world needs. Uh, this is what we need. This is what we want, a fulfillment of these promises. We need a family. We need a home. We need a name. We need security and purpose. And so what does God promise? He promises six things to Abram. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Those are the six promises that God makes to Abram. A few things to note about these. First, this six-fold promise was always the goal for human beings. Created in the image of God. Remember the charge given to Adam, then given to Noah, is to be fruitful and multiply to exercise dominion over the earth, to cultivate the ground. In Genesis 12, God is simply reinstating his purpose for humanity. But whereas those were commands, God commanded Adam to be fruitful. He commanded Noah to be fruitful. This is a promise. And that is a huge difference, right? To be commanded to do something and to be promised after the travesty that was Genesis 3 through 11, God is done with leaving it to humans to carry out his purpose. And since he already promised Noah that he's not gonna destroy them, like he's not gonna wipe them out, he's gotta figure something out. And so what does he do? He decides, you know what, I'm gonna do this. And Genesis 1 through 11 proves to us that we can't do it. The height of Genesis 11, the height of humanity, apart from God, is the Tower of Babel, and that does not go very well. And so here we start with Adam or with Abram. God saying, you know what? I'm going to do this. I will multiply you. I will make you fruitful. Your salvation is in my hands now. And that contrast is key to the whole uh, plan of scripture. He commanded Adam and Noah and they failed. He promised Abram and he succeeded. As if to emphasize this point, God chooses an impotent old man one who is literally incapable of multiplying. He's 75 years old, married to, um, how old is Sarai at this time? She's maybe 60 at this time. And he chooses them to restart the human race, to redeem the human race. That is one of the major points of Genesis 12 that's easy to forget. Because we, when we hear Abram, we sort of hear the rest of the story in his name. We just sort of already like import that into it. Um, we think of him as great. And he was great. Um, but he came from nothing. He came from less than nothing. Uh, we would not know who Abraham was were it not for the promise of God. And this isn't only a major theme in Genesis 12, but it's developed all throughout Scripture. Where God consistently chooses small and insignificant people. He consistently chooses people who aren't just like neutral or blank, but they actually have uh, liabilities that make it even harder for God to achieve his purposes. But he chooses them because it emphasizes his glory, his power, his grace. Uh, Even Jesus, God's son, was intentionally not placed in a palace. He wasn't placed in... um, the high points of humanity, but was instead placed in a manger, in a poor family, in a poor city under the thumb of a strong, glorious empire. So that we would know that it was God who saves. Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Abraham reminds us of this. This is the story of the church. 
right? An impotent people made powerful by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 always um, is this backhanded compliment uh, for the church, but it gives me such hope. Uh, He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so that's the first thing we learn. That habit that we see on full display in the church begins here with Abraham. This decision of God to choose what is low and poor and foolish, to shame and to um, overcome things that are. Uh, God didn't headhunt Abraham. Uh, He didn't see something the world didn't see. Uh, He wasn't a diamond in the rough, Um, and neither are we. Um, Abraham would become a diamond, um, surely. He becomes great, but at this point, he's just dead bones. He's just fossilized, right? He hasn't been crafted and, and changed by God. But the great power of God, a power that belongs exclusively to God, is to create something from nothing. Uh, this is what Paul identifies in, the, in Abraham's faith in Romans 4 when he's commending Abraham to the Romans. And he's asking them to believe like Abraham believed. It's a, in Romans 4, he says, Abraham believed in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old by the time he had Isaac. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is an important truth in the gospel that we find in this story that keeps us humble and hopeful. Apart from God, we are dust and to dust we shall return. We recite that every year in the season of Lent as we begin that I'm dust and to dust I shall return. But with God, we are made alive, alive and effective. And so are we convinced of that? Are we convinced of our insignificance, of our smallness apart from God? And are we convinced of the power of his promise to make us significant, uh, to make us, um, to bless us into a great nation? Uh, It's what he delights to do. And so I just encourage you to like think on the beginnings of your faith. Uh, Think where you came from. What were you like at the start of your faith? What are you like right now? Uh, Abraham remains childless for I think maybe 30 years. Uh, He remained just depending on the promise of God. And so how does that resonate with you? What part of you, when you consider your own body, your own heart and mind, where are you as good as dead? God has promised to bless you, to raise that part of you and all of you from the dead. This is the faith of Abraham, a faith in a God who resurrects. Now, a lot of us hear this and it's sort of a boilerplate pastor, right? 
encouragement in Christianity. Um, and you might think to yourself, man, I've believed God. Um, I've believed that he was a God who could raise the dead. I've asked him in faith to do very specific things, and he hasn't done it. Uh, quite the opposite. And so it's important for us to pay attention. Um, we'll, we'll wrestle with that tension as Abraham waits on the Lord uh, throughout the month. But it's also important for us to, to think, like, what exactly has God promised to do? Um, what are the six promises? What do they mean? And so these six promises are broken into two groups of three, uh, very clearly in the structure of it. And the first group of promises relate directly to Abram. They pertain to God's blessing of him. And then the second group of promises relate to God blessing the world through Abram. They are promises related to the world. And so in the first group, we have God making promises to Abram that he will make this old and unknown man into a great nation marked by blessing and fame. And considering Abram's station and age, that is a laughable thing throughout the story. The word, there's, there's a lot of instances of the word laughter. Isaac is named laughter, right? Because it's so ridiculous what God is accomplishing. Becoming a great nation implies that he's gonna have children and many of them, and that he's gonna have his own land none of which he has or any promise of at the beginning of it. And so that's the first promise to make him a great nation. And it's a promise that we receive too in Christ, not as father. Uh, we're not the father of, a, of the people of God, but as one of its children. And so our, I mean, if you think about it, our humble worship service this morning is in fulfillment of this promise to Abram, that we are part of that numberless multitude that God promised Abram would see. And, and here we are worshiping in his name. So by following Jesus, we become Abraham's children and God's children, a part of a great nation. And so in that sense, we also inherit this promise that we have hopes of a multitude of people. Even when we look around and think, man, what is so great about the church right now? Uh, this week, uh, through some news and communities, church communities that I've been involved in and denominations and stuff like that have just been super heavy hearted for me. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of sad things happening within the American church that are really discouraging. And I feel like this week in particular for me was like marked by grief. There was like some grief at uh, people just hurt that's being done and has been done. And, and so you just think, man, the church has seen such better days um, for sure. But it is becoming great. Uh, God is faithful to his promise. Uh, the sermon art, uh, which was a collaboration of Tofe and Avery and Carly and Mike, um, it is, uh, I think it was on Ocean Beach. Is that where, is that where the picture, final picture was? And so I think, I think what you can't see is Mike off frame like throwing sand. It's sand in the dunes. And it's inspired by the way that God develops this promise to make them a great nation. And he, and so Abraham doubts and wants to sort of uh, dumb down God's promise. And God's like, no, 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 no. Like, no, it, it's even bigger than what you think it is. So when I say great nation, I mean that your followers will exceed the number of stars in the heaven. When I say great nation, I mean that it will exceed the sand on the seashore. 
And that was, I, I've, I felt so blessed by the sermon art, not only because it's like cool and looks good and it's helpful and I can talk about it right now, but I was like, man, I, Lord, please help that transform my experience of Ocean Beach. That we live in this city where there are very few Christians, a very small number of people. And then in America, I mean, as you look at, it feels like the number is decreasing, right? But God has promised that his people, that followers of Jesus, followers of Abraham, will exceed the number, the grains of sand at Ocean Beach. That is the promise that we have. He says in Genesis 13, that it will exceed the dust in the ground. And so you're surrounded, we're outside. And so consider all the dust around you. That is how great God's promises that we live in that we, that we put our faith in, that God has promised great, great things. And he's, got, he's calling us to believe that metaphor for our church and for San Francisco and for uh, the United States and more importantly for the world, that our future nation, our future kingdom will be filled with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Not one will be accepted. All of them will be present. And so this is the first very specific promise. And the next two are that that nation will be blessed and great. Uh, blessing is an important word in these three verses. Um, it's mentioned five times in the promise, in the calling of Abraham. And that's significant because in Genesis 1 through 11, curse, the word for curse is mentioned five times. And so this is a direct counter to all that has happened, all the terrible that has happened because of sin in Genesis 1 through 11 or 3 through 11. God is undoing the effects of sin through the calling of Abraham. And what does blessing mean? It is the opposite of cursing. So if cursing has to do with death, blessing has to do with life. Blessing is what brings life. To be blessed is to experience abundant life with God. Um, it's enjoying perfect shalom, confident flourishing, so that we are fulfilling God's purpose for our lives individually and collectively. And God is promising this to Abraham, uh, which is significant. His life has not thus far been marked by blessing, but he will be blessed. That's not all that God is promising. So again, the first set of promises is directed at Abraham. The second set is, has to do with the world. And so God blesses Abraham in order that he might be a blessing and bring salvation to all the nations. From the very beginning, and so, you know, we talk about the Jewish people as the chosen people of God, right? And so this very much has the ring of election and the doctrine of election here that they have been sovereignly chosen, graciously chosen. But it's a, it is a, it's not a, it's a chosenness that leads to the flourishing of the world. It's a chosenness not just for themselves, not even primarily for themselves, but is chosen so that they would be part of God's salvation. It is only the one who curses Abraham who brings curses on himself. God's primary intention is to bless the world, even to save it. And um, if, you, if you read it closely, you'll see God's hopefulness, right? He says that he's going to bless those, plural, who curse you, and curse the one who curses you. And so God is envisioning more people responding, a plurality of people blessing Abraham and receiving him and being blessed through him. And then acknowledges a minority of people, the one who curses you will be cursed. 
what we find in the story of Abraham is that sometimes Abraham forgets this second set of promises and is very preoccupied with the first set, right? He cares deeply that he is blessed. He's worried about his continued uh, childlessness. That is the focus of his attention. He's worried about his safety. That's why he uh, risks Sarah's life. Um, and God has to remind him to attend to the second set of promises. Remember why you're being blessed. But we also find that Abraham at other times does pursue the good of the nations around him. He like risks his life and risks his people to, to intercede, to rescue Lot, to rescue Sodom and Gomorrah, using God's blessing to be a blessing. And so as we think about the call of God on our life, which set of promises do you find yourself most preoccupied with? your own blessing, which is part of God's promise to you. Like that is not something to shy away from, to, to ask the Lord to do what he promised and to bless you. Uh, we should be ashamed for asking God to, to bless us, to help us flourish and multiply. But are we also asking God to bless others through us? Are we also pleading with the Lord and frustrated when that is not happening? Are we remembering that Christians are called to be the world's priests? And what does that mean to be a priesthood of believers? It means that we intercede to God for others and we intercede for God to, or for God to others. Like we're, we're middlemen, right? And so we're pleading with the Lord as Abraham does. We're saying, please forgive them. Please save them. And then we're also looking and, and asking people to, to call out for salvation, to to be reconciled to God. That is the image of God, the image of Christ in us. The gospel is not just about our own blessing, but about bringing blessing to the world to make us, again, small and unworthy people into agents of reconciliation, agents of shalom, agents of safety, agents of prophetic witness, agents of truth in a chaotic world. God promises to bless those who bless Abraham and curse the one who curses him. So that from this point on, every human being is judged based on how they treat Abraham and the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus. And God's hope is that all the nations of the world will be blessed, even as individuals within those nations are cursed. Uh, one final point as we think about this passage and, and get the structure of it. These two sets of three promises are marked by two commands. That's part of how they're divided into three is that there's a command, three promises, a command, and three promises. And so while God isn't asking Abraham to be fruitful and multiply, he's, he's no longer commanding him to be fruitful. He does command him to do something, right? He still asks for obedience, a faith expressed in obedience. And the first set of promises begins with the command to go. Genesis 12, 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And the second set of promises concerning the blessing of the world is that Abraham would be a blessing so that you will be a blessing. Um, a lot of translations translate that as like a result that I'm gonna bless you so that, but it, it's really better as just a command, as two commands, go be a blessing. Those are the two things that Abraham is responsible to do. You go, you be a blessing, and I will bless. Abraham couldn't make himself fruitful. 
he was as good as dead, but he could go and he could be a blessing with what God blessed him with. And those are just great, simple commands for us to lay onto our lives. First to go, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. Everyone who would follow Christ must leave what they know to follow God. And the leaving is increasingly painful. So not only from your country, but also your kindred, your clan, your community, and not only from your community, but even from your father's house. Um, We learn about Abraham's father's death in Genesis 11, but if you do the math, Terah actually died just two years before Sarah. I didn't realize that. And so for all of his wandering and for all of his doubts, Abraham could have gone back home. He could have said, forget this, I'm gonna go back home and be with my family but he stayed faithful. This is super meaningful to me and to many of us in San Francisco who live away from our country and kindred and homes in many ways, Um, not in as dramatic a way as Abraham who never returned home. Um, In the last couple of years reading this story, I realized that Abram never owned a home, right? And um, that is resonant with so many of us. uh, uh, Because we don't own homes. Many of of us don't own homes here. God promised Abram land, a home, but he never owned it. The only part of Canaan he ever owned was his burial plot, right? That's the only time in the story where he purchases in faith a burial plot for he and his family in Canaan. It turns out that God's promises to him were for later generations and for eternity. And that encourages me as someone who's likely to never own a piece of San Francisco. Um, It's okay because God can still bless and make great I'm waiting for a city that is not of this world. So God commands us to go, and the second command is to be a blessing. Be a source of life wherever you are with whatever you have. When we first start out in our relationship with God, all we can do is go, but as we go, we have opportunity to represent God throughout the world, to be an image of God and an image of Christ. The first step, though, is going, and Abraham does that. Uh, 11.4, Abram went as the Lord had told him. And details will be fleshed out as his story stretches on, but the beginning of faith is very, very simple. To just go as the Lord tells you. This passage encourages us to just reflect on the beginning of faith. I really love the definition of faith in Hebrews 11. Um, What is faith but to believe that God exists and that he is good to those who diligently seek him? Um, and so that's sort of pre-Christian, pre, pre-gospel, right? We don't, obviously faith includes Jesus and um, the atonement of sins, but we can boil it down in a very Abraham way to just believing that God exists, Abram believed that God exists and that he would be good to those who diligently seek him. What are ways that God is calling you to return to that very, very simple expression of faith? where you find yourself in a similar place to Abram or you need to remind yourself of of where you came from and what started you on this journey with him, where you just believe he exists and that he's good and he will be good. Um, Before this passage is about us, it's about Jesus. Jesus is the true inheritor of this promise and this call. And when we consider Abraham leaving home, it makes more sense because again, his, his life was, was sad, right? He, he was sad and God promised something better. 
the possibility of blessing in a land of curse. And so it was very like wise for Abraham to go. That's not true of the call of Jesus, right? When, when God looked at his son and called him to leave his nation and kindred and father's house, it meant leaving heaven. It meant leaving a place of blessing for a land of curse, cursing. But the promise was still true for him that I will bless you, Jesus, and make you into a great nation. And I will make your name great. And I, um, and I will make your name great. And as you go and are a blessing to those around you, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And so this promise is indirectly related to us. We inherit this promise, but where we are in it originally is the people who bless Abraham or curse Abraham, the people who bless Jesus and curse Jesus. And so part of our like gathering for worship, wanting to, wanting to get in on this blessing is just a simple like blessing of Jesus. That as, G, as, as the father blesses Jesus and turns him into a great nation, and as he promises to bless those who bless you and curse the one who curses you, we come and we bless Jesus. We praise him. We confess his greatness and his glory. We worship him. And in that, we are blessed. What promise, what of these six promises do you need to hear this morning mostly? And where are they answered in Jesus? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful again for Abraham. We're thankful for an imperfect hero, um, an imperfect example for us to follow. We see ourselves in his failures and we hope to see ourselves in his glory, his courage and bravery, his maturity and faith. We are more thankful for Jesus than we are for Abraham. We're thankful for his perfect example, that he perfectly went, left his father's house for an unknown land to wander homeless, to be, to experience cursing. And we're thankful that he was perfectly obedient to the call to be a blessing. He was a blessing and you have blessed us as we bless him. Father, I pray for our hearts and for our journey through this story, would you Remind us of the simplicity of faith and help us to walk in it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.